0: For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpowercom awards. Only at Sleep Number Stores or SleepNumber.com.
1: Hello, everyone. It's Christine Marie Mason, your host for the Rose Woman podcast. Every week, we talk about something that might create a little bit more love, or liberation, or openness, or excitement, or adventure in our lives, in our self-concept, deprogramming, reprogramming as it were. This week I am so excited to offer you a live recording from an event we did in New York between September 27th and October 1st, so just a couple of weeks ago, where for four straight days we had amazing councils, artist talks, gatherings in the evening of people speaking on just these kinds of topics. Um, how do you awaken your lifelong sexuality? What is orgasmic birth? How do you activate for reproductive rights? What is a new story in media? What does the metaverse mean for women? I will be releasing many of these talks either here on the podcast or at the Rosewoman site, rosewoman.com. And the first one we're gonna share with you today is Dr. Gita Vaid and Dr. Kelly O'Donnell on women and psychedelic medicine. They are both physicians who are working in clinical practice, as you'll hear in their credentials, very, very impressive. And we spent a good hour, the three of us, talking about how entheogens, psychedelics, substances that create expanded states of consciousness, can be used in conjunction in therapeutic environments with long-art care integration to really produce long-lasting resolution of trauma, reduction of fear, and how that might apply to women. I've talked a little bit about this in the past, how my first drug of any kind was not until I was in my mid-40s, and I'd sort of grown up with this idea that we were you know, drug, the war on drugs and your brain on drugs and, you know, sort of drug dealers and drug crime, you know, just, it was, it was a whole situation that I didn't question whether or not what I was being told was true. Like I could definitely see the harm of addiction. I could definitely see the harm of people who are individually strung out, but none of the positive or therapeutic benefits of any of these medicines was ever even hinted at. Or the mind expanding or the consciousness expanding aspects of it. It was just very much demonized. So I remember hitting a point when my then husband had been very, very sick with cancer. And a lot of things were going on in in our relationship that I could not understand. And it was really the impetus for me to, you know, I tried everything else. Gone to therapy. Tried traditional psychopharmaceuticals. Nothing was working. I was doing yoga and meditating and all of these things, but I was still in this like deep confusion and grief. And a friend of mine invited me to go to ceremony uh, where they were doing an ayahuasca ceremony. So I dove right into the deep end of that. There was another incident where someone said, hey, you've never tried LSD. Didn't you know that all these Nobel Prize winners had their winning insights on this particular molecule and that it was under investigation for... Uh, treating alcoholism, for treating depression, um, all kinds of things before it was made illegal and that there are political motivations for that. Well, anyway, I went off and researched those things and my research included trying them. And not to get too much into any of the hairy details, but I had major breakthroughs. I understood what had happened with my husband. I also got messages at different points from my grandmother on not having resentments. I met my former boyfriend who had died in a car accident. All kinds of things that were living in my subconscious cleared one after the other. Sexual violation, cleared. And as that changed me, I began to really get curious about the research that was happening today and how the community around alternative and expanding consciousness kind of medications was forming. So it's been a decade, and for the last decade, that has been a pretty steady part of my life. Uh, so I offer you today the work and insights in this conversation between me, Dr. Gita Vade, and Dr. Kelly O'Donnell. I hope you enjoy it. <laughs>
2: I am Kelly O'Donnell, I'm a psychiatrist. I work part-time at NYU, where I'm the director of clinical education at the NYU um, Center for Psychedelic Medicine. And as sort of in that capacity, I work as a psychedelic therapist on a number of clinical trials that we have, MDMA, psilocybin, um, for various clinical indications. And um, And then I also am involved in a lot of educational and therapist training activities in that capacity. And then I also have a small private practice where I practice ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, other kinds of death psychotherapy, um, really trying to take what you've been talking about, kind of a holistic approach to, to wellness and healing and growth.
0: Thank you. Um, hi, I'm Geeta Vaid. I'm a psychiatrist and a psychoanalyst. I'm the founder of the Center for Natural Intelligence. It's a multidisciplinary clinic, which is dedicated to innovation in psychedelic psychotherapy. I practice and teach ketamine-assisted psychotherapy with um, the Ketamine Training Center. I'm also working with Mount Sinai on developing a ketamine-assisted psychotherapy study. And I'm um, head of education and psychedelic awareness for the Chopra Foundation, where I work with Deepak Chopra.
1: Are you both working only with ketamine or are you also using other substances? Can you speak with that?
2: So in my my private practice, I work only with ketamine. At NYU, in in the research setting, I work with psilocybin and MDMA and in the future, some others as well. Uh, I don't do underground work, so those are the only, so ketamine is the only um, psychedelic medicine that I can legally prescribe. Um, and I, and so
1: that. Unless it's in a, in a trial setting. Exactly. Okay. How about you?
0: I'm very um, fluent at working with most of the psychedelic medicines that we typically hear about, but in my private practice, I work exclusively with ketamine, and I am a MAPS trained therapist, so I have a lot of experience working with MDMA.
1: So, uh, for the people who don't know, um, MAPS is uh, an organization founded by Rick Doblin. Can you speak a little bit about MAPS? Because it's an important con- context for what you just mentioned, like underground work mm-hmm. and how basically the medicine stayed alive in the culture through underground work, but then there was a group of people who began to try to formalize it, to make a legal pathway uh, to recover the options for everybody else who wasn't comfortable with underground. So can you talk about MAPS, what it is?
0: Sure, I think what you're bringing up, Christine, is really important, that even though a lot of these medicines have been made illegal for decades, The practice of psychedelic psychotherapy and the healing potential has not really been lost. It's just happened secretly. And so there's a lot of knowledge already in the field. And some of the early pioneers of this work have really been advocating and policy building to try and legalize these medicines again. And um, Rick Doblin, who's the founder of MAPS, he really um, has been just an incredible force of really making policy shifts in trying to advocate for MDMA, which is a very beautiful medicine, particularly suited to manage trauma, how we can legalize it again to address and treat PTSD.
2: Yeah. I think it's been alive not only in the underground setting, also in indigenous settings, not with MDMA specifically, but with various plant medicines, as I'm sure many of you are aware. Uh, I think it's, it's important to bring up maps and MDMA because I think it can be easy to talk about psychedelics as sort of a monolith when really working with them does not feel monolithic. There, it can be easy to say certain things that might sound a bit facile but, and be true for each of them, right, that, that in a general orientation that it's good to adopt when you're somebody who's trying to use these medicines for healing is to trust, let go, and be open. And that's true, and yet what that actually looks like, what that experience is for both the participant or patient and the therapist, I think is quite different when working with, with one medicine versus another. So, so I do think that talking about psychedelics can get tricky. MAPS has primarily, MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, you mentioned Rick Doblin, who's the founder of MAPS, was really the major a nonprofit originally funding the vast majority of the MAPS research, or of the MDMA research, and that's the research that you'll have been hearing about over the last couple of years of MDMA for the treatment of MDMA-assisted therapy for the treatment of PTSD. You know, even five years ago, I think plenty of people would say MDMA is not a psychedelic. I think now the culture has shifted such that, and with ketamine as well, many of the psychedelic purists who think, oh, it's just, uh, classic hallucinogens, so that would be things like psilocybin or ayahuasca, which has DMT in it, um, LSD, as you had mentioned, that those are what, are what real psychedelics are. We call those now classic psychedelics. And we've sort of incorporated the others as well. And the way I think about it more now is to what extent and how can we work with non-ordinary states of consciousness for in the service of healing and growth? And I think that that's something that they all have in common. Um, but yes that that maps has been um since mdma was illegalized and it doesn't have you know an indigenous tradition since it was made schedule 1 which means that it has high potential for abuse and no potential for, for clinical use um, since that happened, the underground, uh, or the underground community continued, as Kita was talking about, and the research eventually started taking off sort of through the sheer force of will sometimes of Rick Doblin, and, and since then, lots and lots of people that he's gotten on his team, including some really, really incredible women.
1: I really love the nuance of parsing out this pharmacopoeia. And that there are so many more that are beyond the classics and beyond medically mm-hmm. lab-made, grown, that don't even get any mention. The Encyclopedia of Hallucinogenic Plants has 2,200 different plants that can be uh, formulated in different ways, which is really beautiful. So thank you for And that they each have different uh, applications. So can we talk about the applications? Mm-hmm. Like I'd love for everyone, if you're considering this work, to go out and research the history of why it's been so demonized. So we, you, you have that context. There are wonderful books about that. I'd love to focus us on what presents in your practices that women or men are, can come in, and be treated for. Where is it indicated? What kind of problems are you solving?
0: Well, I, I just want to go back to one other thing about sure. MAPS and Rick Doblin and the pioneering brilliant work he did. I think one thing that's worth mentioning is not only has he kept this field alive or even kind of started the process for legalization, is he did something incredibly clever. In addition to trying to legalize MDMA, he really created a study which is MDMA psychotherapy. And so he created a whole manual. It's not just the medicine itself. And so he used MDMA, but we could talk about psychedelics, but also opened up the idea that it's the psychotherapy part, it's the process. And in his research, really taps into what Kelly has alluded to, the potential to self-heal, yeah. the potential that non-ordinary states have to tap into innate healing potentials in the body. So I think even that, it's not just the psychedelics, it's even the whole you know, way in which healing is considered that is coming to the foreground that some of these early thinkers have really bought into the mainstream research focus. And it's a radically different way of thinking about what is healing?
2: It's a radically different way of thinking about what is healing if the way that we're used to is the biomedical model, right? Mm. Because I'm I'm sensitive to the fact that we're mentioning Rick's name a lot, when in reality, what we're talking about is a very feminine approach to healing, right? We're talking about the creation of a container. We're talking about the, the importance of trust, And the importance of surrender, right? Classically feminine, psychologically feminine values that really have been kind of removed from the biomedical model that sees people as fundamentally defective. And so this external, you know, force, the doctor needs to come in and give you a drug from outside. So yes, I think it is, I think it's no coincidence that a man was required, right, to, to codify things that women have been practicing in the creation of safe containers, safe spaces, nurturing relationships, you know, throughout history. Mm-hmm. And that even though, you know, in, at a certain point we start saying Rick Doblin really just as a shorthand because because many of the women therapists, many of the, the folks who collaborated to bring together the training, the manual, that model were women, women Classically aren't the ones in front of the microphone, whether that's because they aren't given the opportunity or because they're more interested in doing the actual work behind the scenes of creating those, you know, those safe containers. Um, Mm. I, I think that, that thinking about sort of, there's the hero's journey, there's the heroine's journey, and then there's the homemaking, right? And I think so much of what I appreciate about psychedelic therapy is the homemaking. That that's what you're happening. That's what's happening in this session. It's a,
1: very, it's a really interesting dialogue around this topic. Like I'm thinking about Zoe Helene and Cosmic Sister, mm. and how she's been working. There's there's something subtle in the way women are socialized to be good. The good girls like that, that is ironic in that you needed this sort of I'm going to do it with the system and the medical model and like a vetted process and like take it to the FDA and all that stuff that is a masculine model, but then in a weird way allowed the dominant media to pick up the stories and publicize it, which then gave the good girls. Permission to go and like, oh well, maybe there is something to this. And so there's a whole complexity of the under the the undercurrent of the container and the uh, indigenous collective field awareness that's at work, and then also this need to to like be be approved and be safe that happens when it's legal. So I love that there's a a weaving of both of these that's required to get it out in people's hands.
2: Yeah, it's beautifully, it's beautifully put. I love that you're bringing in weaving. I'm thinking about this beautiful artwork, right? And you mentioned, as you were describing it, I was thinking about Penelope in the Odyssey, Odysseus' it wife who's there, and every night she's, she's weaving, 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 because she's telling these suitors who are you know, trying to pursue her while her husband's been off at war um, that you know, when this is done, then I'll pick one of you. And every night after they leave, she undoes the, the weaving. And so it continues that way. And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about how it brings also in like ceremony, right? The, the relevance of a, a sort of women-specific dimension of the ceremony um, in, in the piece and how how important that is, and all of these, all of these threads, literally and figuratively, that I think are brought to bear in the work that aren't explicitly named in the media around it. So much of the publicity around it is like psychedelics. It's a one and done. Cure your alcohol use disorder in a weekend. Your friends don't even have to know that you have a problem, right? And, and really, the work itself is, is so different. The work itself is so much more about how do I, as a therapist, create for this person an experience of care? Hmm the absence of which is probably a big part of whatever it is that they're drinking over. And and none of that makes it into the
1: articles. Um, So I think Gita was alluding to that with the therapy container. Would you
0: talk a little bit more? I would love to talk to you. You know, it's sort of funny. As a psychiatrist and a psychoanalyst, I've been trained to be really efficient at diagnosing or thinking about how did the past affect your present life and got very skilled at figuring out these patterns with the patients or using my relationship with them to identify in the present moment how these things come to life. And it's really shifted my work, working with psychedelics, because I'm interested in that to a significant extent, I'm trained to do that, but really what's way more interesting, once you identify how we have these patterns, all of us, and our coping styles, is how can I help you to release from them and expand beyond that? And it's a real paradigm shift, which is very Mm future-directed. And I would say, for me, what is amazing is, I think, all these different psychedelic compounds, different styles, different signatures, they really allow one to release from the fear-based patterns that we're entrenched in, in our mind, in our feelings, in our bodies, in our nervous systems, which have served us well, but allow us to release all of those positions and all that release of energy gets translated into creativity and imagination. And in that space, there are new potentials, new possibilities that get arrived and worked out in the way that is so profoundly beautiful, and so um, so much a beautiful unfolding process it's the same it's the same genius that we all house in our dreams and this creativity of life and culture that we can create together, and people just get shifted into the artistry of their inner worlds and the art forms that they really are and so that's really I think such a different approach to anything that i've ever experienced in my practice so it's just such a it's such a privilege to be able to create a container to support the person to me what it shifts my role up is not being the clever person who can tell them what happened to them but more a really skilled listener and I feel like I'm getting better and better at listening even more deeply even more fully to provide functions to support the person's process and often these Uh, I think maternal functions that we all have our deficits in because none of us, I think, got the village we all needed. Um, Certainly, I didn't get my village that I would have liked to have to nourish myself. Mm. So to reflect and to listen and to feel with the person or to correct some of these misrepresentations of how one sees themselves, which is from the past instead of what's happening in the moment. I think these kind of maternal functions are really an incredibly important aspect of what comes to the foreground in what we call psychotherapy.
1: This theme of how much of your energy, even in this moment, is anchored in your past, Mm -hmm. and how much are you hanging back from the now? Sorry, hanging back from the now. And how much of your energy is leaning out from the moment and in the future, so you're in neither position are you in your body. And that this idea of being suspended and supported between your integrated past and where you're going and like right here in your body that expression comes from releasing those traumas that are anchoring you back there so can you tell me some stories uh tell me some stories (laughs) about um about like how someone might come into pre- pre- what they present with, and then what the transformation looks like. What are some of the experiences? I love that. Would you like to go first?
2: We skipped your question in a way. Your other question about you know who who who's coming for these things. My thinking is not linear. I don't think being is linear. But I think that people talk often about psychedelic medicine as being transdiagnostically useful so the same medicine can be useful for people with various different diagnoses and I think one of the things that Gita is hitting on is the fact that we all have our shit right and we all are uncomfortable with that and restrained by it, and often feel victimized by our past, by our story, or eager to, you know, write some other story that might or might not fit. But it's just, you know, the, the sense of urgency of getting out of this moment, getting out of our body is so great that, it, you know, we want to move past that. And that can manifest in so many different ways. And those different ways that it manifests have different names according to the biomedical model, right? Whether you're drinking over it and you have some, you know, some level of alcohol use disorder or you have major depressive disorder or you have any number of different trauma reactions, that all of those are things that we are walking around with. Often, I mean, I say all of us, I don't know. I have it's a self-selected bunch, right? Because I see the people who come to my office, I see my friends, most of whom are therapists or psychiatrists, you know, in the fields generally, normal healthy folks who had the village. I don't get there. Normal healthy folks who had the village, they probably didn't go to medical school in the first place. So, you know, that the archetype of the wounded healer is real, and I would I would I, I sense that maybe a disproportionate number of people who are at home in New York City are also
0: wounded in one way or another. Well, I'd love to also share what it looks like in the consulting yes. room. So I'll give you some examples because I think it might better capture the innate creativity of healing um, and, and the, and the pace of it. This is a young woman I love to describe because she's sort of my teacher. She is a college student who came to work with me, a very bright young woman who had suffered two rape experiences, one early in college and one in her younger years, and had done so much good work in therapy to sort that out, but still, of course, struggled with it and had tremendous PTSD, which was ongoing. And literally on her first session with ketamine, this is after a handful of preparatory sessions, she lay on the couch and she saw, when she dropped into the space in her mind's eye, a whole tapestry which was exquisite with with all sorts of embroidery and richness and texture. And she described to me that she realized that tapestry was her and it was her whole life story. And on it she saw there was a stain on the tapestry which she recognized was the rape experiences she had and how that had become her center of gravity. And she laughed. As she said, how has that become my sense of who I am when there's this whole rich tapestry that is continuing to unfold, that has all these intricate designs and stitching and pieces and colors, and I'm focusing on the stain compared to the whole richness, and she was amazed and felt immediately liberated from that connection to that horrible pieces of her life, and she even said to me, coming over here, a fellow said to her, on her way over to the sessions, complimented on her, her attractiveness, didn't want anything from her, just more was enjoying saying, you know, you're very beautiful. And she said, why isn't that my center of gravity? Why is, and in that instant, and it's been sustained, she really felt she was released from some of that hold on her that, that, that the experiences had had. And actually, we haven't really done other sessions since then. We've talked intermittently, but she felt, I don't really want to spend my time thinking and talking about that anymore. I'll come back if I need it. And it was such a beautiful piece of work that she was able to, in the moment, liberate herself from the past, as you very aptly described, Christine, how much we live backwards or future-directed instead of just being in the moment.
2: Especially women who are often very high-achieving, I think um, you know our, our, when, when you're high achieving, t- chances are you're high achieving in a hyper-masculine world. And so in order to do that, they've accessed some power in their inner masculine and harnessed that, but often at the expense of some other feminine energies that in psychedelic experiences they get some access to, that they're able to reconnect to their to a deeper kind of wisdom that isn't as kind of neck up, that is embodied, um, and to and to in, especially for women I've, I've in the in the maps funded trials of MDMA for PTSD, you know women who have a history of sexual trauma are often very disconnected from their bodies and come not to trust their bodies at all. They feel that they've been betrayed by their bodies. And those experiences are, are an opportunity to return to themselves. It's a kind of homecoming experience and a discovery that actually their bodies weren't what betrayed them at all, right? That they can, can, can and need to come into a new relationship with themselves, with their sexuality, their sensuality, that that's not dangerous and that not doing that is an
1: enormous cost. And you've seen that in sessions. Absolutely. Do you have a an example of so I'm
2: thinking of somebody uh, in the Maps trial for whom that was the case. Just a real insight that that her body wasn't who betrayed her. Mm-hmm that she had been walking around with a distrust of her body, a, no desire to be sexually intimate with others because of that, um, and a, a real aversion to it. I'm thinking also of a patient in my private practice who has a history of childhood sexual trauma, very high achieving, um, extraordinary woman, and her ketamine experiences have been have been very sensory and very blissful in a way that was completely foreign to her. she It had never occurred to her that her body could be a source of pleasure, let alone a source of joy. And the mere, and it's, it's a little ironic because Kat, Kat, I mean, we talk about it as a dissociative psychedelic, um, that it's an out-of-body experience. And yet, sort of the, the entrance into that, it can be a felt experience of how your body, like when you really sink into it, mm-hmm. Is a portal into wholeness, wholeness not just with yourself, but with all things. Mm-hmm. Um, and ketamine, in doing that, in in kind of dissolving those boundaries between self and other, can do that. So she will talk about how, oh my god, I feel like my body is stretching, 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 and now it's bec- it's stretched so far that it's become the universe. And having that experience be be a very blissful one, um, and 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 felt really, a felt experience of, of sensuality and wholeness.
1: So I hear um, both recovery from sexual trauma, uh, return to the body, mm. as I hear alcohol, which is now a new word for me, alcohol consumption disorder, what do you Alcohol use disorder. Alcohol use disorder. Tommy Rosen, who runs a program called Recovery 2.0, has spoken to the use of all drugs and alcohol as a yearning to connect with the natural joy and pleasure that is our mm. birthright and that instead of seeing it as a pathology, to see it as an unskilled pathway to feel great, you know, at least in the short term. And I, I, so I love this tapping into pleasure and how life might feel in a body.
0: I love that you say that, Christine, because more and more I feel like in some ways I'm really good at working with character and defenses because I feel like those are the structures that we housed within which save us and create us in a way and then become our imprisonment. Mm -hmm. And more and more I feel like, you know, I work with all of these different pieces so someone can have access to more of themselves and the innate creativity to release from that. But actually our whole self-sculpture and and our character is a defense itself against the ecstatic experience of life. And I think the more you do this work, the more you can sort of be in the moment and release from our fear-based structures and more in resonance with the world around us. Because at any moment, actually, and I think what's been amazing to me is psychedelics open that, but then it also invites us to think, do you really even need the psychedelics? This is activating our innate capacities. There's many parts in to really be fully alive and to be in flow and in tune to the pulse of life around us. And I think that's mm. what's so powerful about these medicines, because we focus so much on trauma and what's wrong. But ultimately, all of those things get released so we can open up to what's right about us, how we are alive and we are vital and we are here at any moment in the mm-hmm. flow of life. And what a mysterious, exciting adventure we're on. You know, I'm like, um
1: Who's defended against the ecstatic experience of life? Mm. Isn't that a beautiful Mm. phrase? We had a woman who was here on Tuesday night, and she opened by doing a vocal performance of wailing, wailing birth and wailing orgasm, and like she was just in it, you know? And it created a reaction. Some people really loved it, and some people were like very shocked by it. But like that depth of not being afraid of that full expression was so powerful in the space for me you're kind of crazy if you walk around in the ecstatic experience of life. People think you're not a realist. You know? I
0: love that you say that Bob Thurman, who's <laughs> one of my teachers, and uh, I train a lot at his place at Manly, he was he said recently, and I'll quote him again, um, maybe misquote him, but the gist will be correct, about how in our culture, if you're sad or depressed or suffering, we feel very safe around that. If someone is in bliss, people start getting nervous. What's wrong with them? Are they getting manic? <laughs> There's something off. It makes us very uncomfortable, whereas if you're just depressed, you're like, okay, you're paranoid, that's okay. And I think it's so true because we are really conditioned against being ecstatic, being blissful. It makes people nervous. I also think though, I, I'd push back against that a
2: lot. I love Bob, but I'd push back against it a little bit. I think we know how to be depressed comfortably or depressed in a way that's comfortable for others. And I think we don't know how to be ecstatic in a way that's comfortable for others. I think that, I think much of depression, um, and there are some, some women depth psychologists who, who have written about this, is about the failure to be able to really effectively be with suffering, even. Right, the other pole of the ecstasis and the catharsis, right? If we could really be in it rather than kind of avoiding it because we're afraid that it will take over us and destroy the world, because that is how it feels in those moments. If, if we could really sink into it and face the fear, you know, the existential terror that we, you know, that we have in looking at it, then we might discover actually that it is just one other pole of this whole experience of wholeness, of that, you know, one other side of that very experience of ecstasy, that that's what wholeness is. So you're basically saying
1: that if there's a standard deviation of expression or feeling intensity, that we're not comfortable on either extreme, and that if we could be more present, we'd be good. We would have a more inclusive experience.
2: If we could be more present with our own experience and more permissive of the experiences of others, I think that we, we get uncomfortable. We, we wonder what demands will it have on me? Um, is, you know, what will other people think? How inconvenient will this be? I have kids to attend to. I have my job to attend to. I don't have time to be sad right now. I don't have time to Mm -hmm. grieve right now. I don't have time to wail and in that, my grief. And that gets caught in the body.
1: And then you have to go see Dr. Gita. Absolutely. You know? and,
0: and how much of the work is, to your point, Kelly, about really just growing our capacities to hold more and more of the intensity yeah. of feelings mm-hmm. and passions, both the joy and ecstasy, as well as the pain and suffering that is that is part of life. Mm-hmm. And not really trying to block it or suppress it or get better at navigating to one of the poles, more to being open to, tolerated, by growing our containers and capacities through connection and relationship. I would
1: like to ask you a question about the nature of consciousness and medicines. And in a lot of the underground work and in the indigenous work, they express the idea that the plants have a consciousness and they're here to be our teachers, that the Earth has a Gaian consciousness and it's in constant relationship and has its will. And that some of these plants are a conduit between the earth and human consciousness, like teaching us. And that's not a very discernible Western model. I mean, I remember being little and wondering, like, how many people had to die figuring out that certain plants were poisonous? You know, that it was like, it was because I was so steeped in the scientific method. And then hearing for the first time from an indigenous person that, what are you talking about? We just go up a level, and we have a conversation with the spirit of the plant and we ask them what they're for and they tell us. Then we drop back into our body and we use it. Like, I'm like, well, you do what, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so I feel that there's an entire worldview around what is, what is consciousness and what's our relationship to these substances and our own biochemistry that is, is sort of open for conversation. I wonder if your work has led you, particularly because you're Western trained, And you're doing this work, which puts you at this beautiful bridge point. Like, where are you? Where's your thinking on that now?
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, I can certainly speak for myself. I I have to say, I've had a big paradigm shift in my own life. I mean, in working with these medicines, I am and was trained as a scientist and a doctor. But I feel like this work has really opened me up to really the knowledge that I grew up with in my home and in my lineage from being raised Hindu and some of the ideas that were, you know, in my environment because there is so much we can't explain from science and medicine and how little we know. So for me, consciousness is just a very different idea than just an epiphenomena of the brain. But I think the truth is we don't know, so I don't like to in any way... Um, you know, I have my own beliefs, and i don 't want to impose them on anyone else and However you think of consciousness it 's a big mystery and there is so much that we have to be open to having reverence for to me it 's a very mystical phenomena, even if it 's from the brain or even if it exists in the universe in a universal kind of sense. But I would say what you touched on for me is really beautiful is this idea of how I think it, I think this work with medicines whatever your belief system is, allows you to drop out of your mind and really tap into the natural intelligence within the body and the natural intelligence in the, in the natural world and earth. And if our minds get out of the way and we can kind of drop into our sensuality and the wisdom of our senses and our bodies and our beings, so much comes up in terms of connection with the natural world.
2: Yeah, I, I, like you, Gita, I don't think that I ever was on sort of a one track where my mind got more and more narrow as my training got more and more kind of directed. I was, you know, one of those girls who liked to walk around in the garden singing, hoping that the birds would sort of land on our shoulders, sort of trusting that someday it was going to happen, really kind of just feeling that the world was alive in a certain way and connected in a certain way and in a you know in a certain way that the biomedical model certainly just does not even address so poetry like the sacred those things have been far more my mother tongue and one that's stuck with me than the scientific language that i learned sort of as a second language i'm grateful to have it i feel like it can make me a useful translator sometimes but my experience of consciousness kind of generally, fundamentally, is more of something that we participate in rather than something that we generate. And I think within that experience, it's quite easy to to make space for narratives, like you're talking about, where one can participate in one way that looks like living, say, um, looks like a particular self-state, we might say, psychologically speaking, and then take a medicine that takes you up or down a level um, that might in, you know, through that very narrow framework of the biomedical model might look like dying, but might, you know, be a different way of participating in consciousness that can be navigated if done so skillfully. But it is really important that we think about What concepts do we use? What stories do we tell to to tell other stories, right? What concepts do we use just generally? What languages do we use? Because those languages themselves empower us or limit us in terms of what, what we are able to imagine. And so I do think, like you're saying, Consciousness is an enormous mystery, um, and I think that opening ourselves up to our imagination and and to a to a real present experience um, is is essential if we're going to expand the possibilities. Mm-hmm. You know about how, how we can be in this world, how we can be different um, in this world. That's
1: great. Do you want to um, take the mic? Will do. Question
2: from a clinical therapeutic perspective, what have you observed to be the biggest difference between using psilocybin or ketamine in your patients' approaches to altered states of consciousness? And do you have a preference or a perspective on which would be sort of more effective or so for what type of therapy? In the research setting, I've looked at um, psilocybin for alcohol use disorder and for major depressive disorder. Both of those often, though not always, often come down to trauma, (laughs) broadly defined and the different manifestations of that. One of the major, so ketamine, the beauty of of working with ketamine, as I think you'll agree, is that since it is controlled but prescribable, we have so much flexibility with how we use it, the doses that we use, the number of times we can, you know, have a session, the amount of integration therapy that happens in between sessions, how intense a session is, because there's a really wide window within which um, ketamine is safe to use, but the different kinds of experiences that it can engender are quite different depending on the dose. And so we can work with it in a way, I'd say, more skillfully um, than we can with things that are I say we, I mean people who are using these things in the above ground setting which is to say the research setting for psilocybin, much more skillfully than we can psilocybin where we have to be doing it within the context of a research protocol. Um, And so it's X number of doses with X number of integration sessions in between. Um, That said, there's outstanding data to support the use of ketamine in the treatment of depression The data is not out yet for psilocybin. There's some promising pilot studies, pretty early things, um, and some phase two trials, but it's it's nowhere near kind of the level that we have for ketamine. Um, And even ketamine, what is out there in the published literature, is far, far less than what we know about in the community anecdotally because lots and lots of the people who love to do the clinical work just aren't publishing the studies. Um, And so there isn't the same, like, motivation to do it for something like ketamine, which was originally FDA-approved as an anesthetic. And so people who care about it, psychotherapists who want to use it in that model, like, for the non-ordinary state, aren't so interested. I think ketamine is an outstanding antidepressant drug for the right people people. Um, psilocybin has a lot of research to support its use for the treatment of addiction, alcohol use disorder especially, from the 50s and 60s. Psilocybin and LSD were commonly used for that. I think a major difference between them just kind of experientially is the length of time of the non-ordinary state. So ketamine accession will last, someone will be in that acutely altered state for what? 30, 35 minutes to an hour, kind of. Um, and then they'll be kind of soft afterwards. Um, and so you can do some really good therapeutic work in that time, but they're still, they're back in their bodies. They're not at one with the universe anymore. Psilocybin, those journeys last about six hours. And there's kind of an arc to the sessions with the most intense part being after a couple of hours, sort of in the two to four hours, and then four to six, it's softer, kind of comes in waves where you can be doing a lot of good work. Um, but that, the length of time makes for a very different kind of experience of, of journey. Right? There's time to get bored. There's time to say, I'm over this now. There's time to be sort of exploring different things. Whereas with ketamine, you'd have to be giving either repeated doses for that, or what we do more commonly in clinical practice is have different sessions. And those different sessions are sort of introductions to, to different kind of threads. Um, any number of which might come up like in a in a longer psilocybin session.
0: And perhaps I'll add to what you're saying in terms of the qualitative experience, because each medicine has their signature, and it can vary according to dose and, and the level of immersion. But I would say, in general, my experience is ketamine is very meditative. When dosed correctly, it can allow you to really drop into different layers of yourself and distill out the mind and the emotional state as well as the soma and to have a platform of witness where you can really appreciate all those different components. And of course there's overlapping with different medicines but I think psilocybin is quite different qualitatively because you really, it's almost like a teacher medicine where the plant uh, molecule itself opens up knowledge and information where you can actually almost go into your own inner knowing and have it represented in different sensory formats. Sometimes you will have like information come to you through pictures or music or just in big downloads of information. And of course there's not deep margins between these different um, molecules. There is an overlap, but it has a very different flavor when you're actually almost released in a classic sense with psilocybin to the fullness and the aliveness, both externally in the world as well as internally in how much information one can access and navigate, which is quite different than I think the meditative um, experience of dropping into pure consciousness and separating from some of these patterns we live within.
2: That's what I would say. There's an enormous variety in terms of the kinds of subjective experiences in all of them, and so I would say there have been many ketamine journeys where I'm like my. Fir- in fact, my 1st time—this is where Gita and I met—was at a at a ketamine therapy training program. So my first high dose ketamine session was it remains probably in the top two most profound psychedelic experiences of my life. It's a it, it just an overwhelming image, felt, embodied experience, image um, that of I had been really struggling with, like, I was at the end of my training, I was like, what the hell am I doing? All of these boys in psychedelic medicine, so I had gotten involved in psychedelic work as soon as I started residency at NYU. All these boys are just like getting all famous like i is that my journey? Is that what I want? Am I getting left behind? Do I care and just really feeling discombobulated around all of that and I went to this training the like the last month of my residency, and it was in this beautiful retreat setting at the Garrison Institute, which I'm sure some of you know and It was after sort of my whole world had fallen apart, like I thought I was just about done. People, you could hear people, it was a group setting, people were kind of murmuring around. And all of a sudden I felt myself as that sort of coming out of the earth as this tree, I could have been tree, um, as this tree. And as this tree emerged out of the earth, it, its branches went down, plunged down with the roots into the, gr- into, into the ground, and everything that was above the earth was this beautiful cathedral, and everything below the earth was these beautiful roots that were all connected to the mycelial network. And within that, so this, this sort of woman cathedral tree, I saw that in these little chambers of the cathedral, there were all of these different stories that were playing out, and one of those stories was the hero's journey, but it didn't feel like my story. My story was the wholeness of the cathedral tree, that there was a part of it right, that might look like that in some way, that I would have my path, but that ultimately I, I, Kelly, contained that but wasn't defined by that. And I say that it's one of the most important experiences of my life because that image You know, the fact that it was embodied, um, you know, I I still carry that with me, right? But it also, the image itself is something that I can access quite easily in meditation. And really return to that, so that even when I'm feeling disconnected, even when I'm feeling myself getting caught up in that hero's journey story again, I can reconnect to that image, reground myself in that, in the roots, you know, in the depths, and in the heights, and you know, in a way that that is really profound.
1: I'm going to say, in the context of the art show, the fact that we're nesting within these images. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. things that stay with me in part are the stain on the weave, on the wo- no. on the woven tapestry, or you as cathedral tree, mm-hmm. and that that is the way the preverbal mind communicates. Yes. It communicates in the depth of these poetic images. You guys, I could talk about this for like the whole day. We should do a whole day just yes. on so this. Well, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did talking with them. I learned a lot I really appreciate the calm and present and caring way that they approach this subject as well as the love for their patients and this deep belief that we are able to heal the things that hold us back from living our most joyful radiant and complete lives so that's my hope for you You can find a lot more content in the Rose Woman podcast archives. There are a couple of other episodes that have dealt with these sort of consciousness expanding ideas. Uh, There are also wonderful articles on our own site about healing trauma. So I'm going to put some of those cross links back in the notes. There is one more day, if you're listening to this on the day that it's launched, that art from the show that we had this conversation at is available at Sensing Woman So if you are longing for an original piece of artwork to have in your home, please check that out. We sold some beautiful pieces, gorgeous beaded pussies with eyes and sculptures from Sophia Wallace. And some really remarkable pieces were sold. So I'm, I'm hoping that you'll also find something for you. As you know, the podcast is sponsored by the company I founded, Rosebud Woman, that was meant to help us integrate our sexuality, sensuality, and reproductive selves into full transparent, radiant living. And that includes knowing our our cycles, that includes understanding what's coming in perimenopause and menopause and beyond, that includes optimizing our sexual relationship, our sexual communication. And you can find beautiful of all our moisturizers, arousal serums, body products, body care products, lifestyle products, all aimed at creating a reverent approach to our beautiful embodiments our whole lives long. So that's rosewoman.com. Support me, support the podcast, and come and try out some beautiful products that thousands of women seem to love enough to rate five stars. Okay to your radiant beautiful self and to your heart